Hi there, welcome to Explain This, a podcast where we try to explain complex things in simpler ways for people of all ages. I'm your host Jen Kim, and today we'll talk about how various medications work to relieve pain and suffering. Let's get started. If there is one shared experience that all human beings can empathize with, it's pain. Except for a rare group of people with a condition called congenital insensitivity to pain, where they literally can't feel pain, but that's a separate issue because nature abhors absolutes and we always have to have a rare exception to everything. But for the most part, all of us have felt pain of various forms. Physical pain, like that from a paper cut or a broken bone, to visceral pain, like when your chest is on fire from the flu or your appendix is about to burst, or in almost half of people's cases, the uterus being a deflated balloon of anguish. Or psychic pain, such as when you're suffering through a breakup that feels like one of your limbs were amputated. Or a mental health crisis where you can't see the point of life at all. Pain comes in all sorts of flavors and magnitude, so it's no wonder we've searched far and wide for millennia trying to find solutions to alleviate it. Luckily for us, we live in an age where we have pretty effective forms of pain relief thanks to modern medicine. Well, for acute physical pain, that is. We still don't have great solutions for chronic pain and psychic pain, so... Tubs of ice cream, comfort food, hugs, and supportive social network, still important. Anyway, I thought I'd do an episode on how both pain and pain relief medications work, because they're often poorly understood, despite how commonly we experience pain and have to use pain relief. Let's start by explaining to you how pain works, as if you're a child. Why do we feel sore or get hurt? It seems weird, right, that our body would have a built-in system to make us feel bad? Well, it's actually a very clever design by Mother Nature, because pain is very necessary to survive. You see, pain is your body's way of telling you something is wrong, and where it's wrong. For example, if you step on a Lego piece that you didn't put away, you feel a lot of pain in your foot, right? That's because when something comes close to damaging your body, like a very hard or sharp object, your body has many tiny alarms all over it to sense that damage. These tiny alarms feel the damage and instantly send a message to your brain in the form of electricity. It's kind of like putting a message in a bottle and relaying it all the way to your brain, like that cool scene in Lord of the Rings where the smoke signal chain goes off. If you're not so young that you've never watched Lord of the Rings, and that's a tragedy all on its own. Anyway, when your brain receives the message, it goes, ow! That way, you'll know that something bad is happening at your foot, and you can respond by pulling your foot back and looking to see what caused the owie. You can imagine how important this would be if you accidentally stepped in a pool of lava or walked into a very sharp pointy stick. If you didn't stop, you'd die. So pain is a warning sign. Your body also uses it to tell you that organs inside you are unhappy, like when you're really hungry or bursting to pee, or you're really sick and you need to see a doctor. But obviously, as you know, pain sucks, and it's really not nice having to feel pain. So doctors will not only look for and treat the cause of your pain, but they'll give you medicines to lessen the pain itself, whether it be reducing the amount of alarm signals your body is sending the brain, or stopping the pain signal from even reaching your brain in the first place. And that's why it's important to take your medicine when your doctor or nurse gives it to you. Now stop screaming and swallow the medicine. Welcome back. Now, like we talked about, pain is a simple but pretty elegant system designed to alert us when we're getting hurt by something, or something's wrong inside us. We have many different kinds of receptors all over us and inside us that can detect noxious stimuli, 
i.e. something that's causing damage to our body tissues. Now this could be physical damage like a cut or a bruise, or inflammation from our body responding to an infection or injury. You know how when you get a bug bite, that area swells up, becomes red and hot? That's inflammation. Now the receptors then trigger an electrical signal to be sent up to the brain through a chain of wires that we call neurons or nerves. There's a relay of neurons from the site of damage all the way to your spinal cord which relays the signal to your brain. Once your brain receives the message, it knows exactly what part of the body sent the message and also how bad the damage is from the amount of electricity it's receiving. The cool thing about pain is that it seems like a simple on-off switch from the outside, but our bodies have evolved all sorts of different systems around the pain pathways. For example, the brain can upplay or downplay the amount of pain. They can modulate it. Some people have a high pain tolerance, so to speak, because they can consciously downplay how much pain the brain is feeling, even if they're suffering the same objective amount of tissue damage. You can simulate this by distracting yourself when you're in pain, like with a funny video, or by swearing loudly. Yep, research has shown that swearing effectively reduces the amount of pain you feel. There's also research that shows red-haired people proportionally feel more pain compared to other people. Pain is real weird like that. Anywho, as useful as pain may be from an evolutionary and survival point of view, it's not great having to experience it. Like, yes, we get it, body, we've sprained our ankle because we slipped on the staircase. Stop reminding us, I'm not walking on it, why are you still so bloody sore? So for millennia, a key mission of medicine has been alleviating pain. Because even early on, doctors recognized the importance of pain relief to reduce suffering in patients they were treating. But in the old days, there weren't many effective solutions. Some cultures discovered herbal cures such as willow barks and poppy extracts, but for the most part, we didn't have effective pain relief until the 1600s or so, with some of our more common medications nowadays having been invented after the 1800s. Nowadays, we have all kinds of different pain relief of various effectiveness. Almost too many, in fact, that lay people don't know which medicine to take when or how they even work. For example, many people don't even bother to take paracetamol or acetaminophen for Americans when they're having a headache or an injury because they think it's too weak to work. So now that we know how pain works, let's learn about how we can relieve pain with medications. Alright, so if we wanted you to stop feeling pain, how would we go about it? We can break down the pain pathway into four simple steps. First, a noxious stimuli causes damage to your tissues. Second, pain receptors notice the damage and send a signal up your nerves. Also, the damage causes inflammation, which causes even more damage and swelling and pain triggers. Third, the signal is transmitted by special neurons, which are connected to the spinal cord, then the brain, through electrical and chemical circuits. Lastly, the brain receives the signal and then interprets it as pain. So this gives us five different ways we can reduce pain. We can take away the thing that's causing the pain and damage to your tissues. We can reduce inflammation. We can reduce or block the signals from going to your brain. Or lastly, we can affect how your brain interprets the pain signal. In medicine, we like to have a lot of tricks up our sleeves. So as you'd expect, we use each of those methods to treat people's pain. By the way, I'm going to be used the word analgesia or analgesic a lot, and this just means pain relief. An meaning no, algesia meaning pain. And yes, it's pronounced analgesia, not analgesia, so let's get that out of the way now. Ha ha. Alright, so let's discuss how we can interrupt the pain pathway at each step. The first one sounds obvious. If you step on a Lego block or prick your thumb on a splinter, you take your foot away or pluck at the splinter, right? 
In more extreme cases, we might reduce a broken bone so that it's not sticking out at a weird angle, then splint it so it doesn't move. Or we might do surgery to remove the thing that's causing all the damage and inflammation, like a burst appendix. But if you sprain your ankle or get the flu, then it's kind of hard to take away the cause of the pain, because either the injury has already happened and it's triggered an inflammation, or because the immune system takes its sweet time killing the viruses. So we have medications to reduce inflammation. The classic example are non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, or NSAIDs for short. I mean, it even has the words anti-inflammatory, so you kind of know what it does. Examples of NSAIDs include ibuprofen, or nurofen, brufen, or Advil depending on where you live, diclofenac, which is also known as Voltaren, and good old aspirin. These drugs all work by disrupting the process of inflammation, telling your body to calm the flip out and stop swelling up the damaged site because it's not going to kill you. The other common pain relief that seems to work by reducing inflammation is paracetamol, or Panadol, or acetaminophen if you're American. I say seems to because even though it's probably the most commonly used pain relief, we don't know exactly how it works. We just know it does. Anyway, let's keep going. How can we disrupt a pain signal from going to the brain? Well, we obviously can't just cut up all your neurons and strip them out of you, so we'll have to use some drugs instead. The most common disruptor of the pain pathway are opioids, such as morphine, codeine, and fentanyl. Opioids are really interesting because they're probably one of the oldest analgesic while still being used as one of the most effective analgesic nowadays. It works by activating a receptor, which is essentially a switch on a cell, in your spinal cord, called a mu receptor. These receptors are super handy products of nature because when you switch it on, it dampens the pain signal from getting through the spinal cord. It's like flicking a switch that closes a garage door so that the pain mobile can't get inside. Your body produces a chemical called endorphin to activate these receptors when you're in pain, like when you break a bone or you torture your body by going for a run. Sickos. You can tell from the word endorphin or endomorphin that morphine works in exactly the same way. Turns out the poppy plant produces a substance called opium that works on the same receptor. So all we had to do was produce a concentrated version of that and voila! We can shut down the pain pathway so that your brain doesn't even hear about the pain. Or at least we can reduce the amount of pain that way. The other way we can disrupt the pain pathway is using local anesthetics, like when you're at the dentist. These drugs literally block nerves from functioning temporarily, so the pain signals don't even reach the spinal cord. This is really useful because you can target exactly what part of the body you want to numb, so when you do medical procedures like stitching you up or when you're having a baby, we can numb just that area, like the bottom half of the body. Last but not least, we have the brain. Now, we could take your pain away by removing your brain, but I'd probably lose my medical license for that, so we'd probably use some simpler methods. Instead, we can influence how your brain perceives the pain. You see, the brain is a mysterious, wonderful, full of faults meat computer. It can be a bit of a baby sometimes. What I mean by that is that when it focuses on something, it can get really obsessed. Like, if you think about the pain, it will zero in and amplify that experience, because it sees it more. It's like when you're in a noisy bar and you focus really hard on what your date is trying to say. Your brain will physically hear your date's words louder because it's tuning into that specific stimulus because of the focus and concentration. Which means the opposite also holds true. When you distract the brain, like, oh look, over there, it's a really shiny eagle, oh look, right now, it'll look away from the pain and physically sense less pain. This is why when people are in pain, our natural instinct is to distract them with cat videos and funny nostalgic stories. 
but this is more for when you're acutely in pain. There's another type of pain that we call chronic pain, where it lasts for a much longer time, sitting in the background and becoming your new normal. In people with chronic pain, it can absolutely ruin their lives because the pain just jumps out to the foreground, preoccupying them and stressing them immensely, and they just can't escape, it's just there all the time. So a part of the treatment for chronic pain is addressing this very step of the pain pathway, the brain. This is where psychotherapy and good education about the nature of chronic pain can make a real difference in the level of suffering the person might experience. We'll talk more about chronic pain another time because it's such a big topic, but for now just remember that we can influence the brain to affect how much pain you feel. Alright, that was a lot of information, so let's take a short break, and when we're back, I'm going to teach you more about the different classes of pain relief in detail, when to use which one, and when they can be very dangerous. See you soon! Welcome back. We've talked about many different forms of analgesia, all with long technical names like paracetamol, NSAIDs, and opioids. So how do we choose which pain relief to use when we're in pain? A very common reason that people present to the emergency department with is pain, which makes sense, that's your body's way of saying something might be wrong. But for how common pain is, many non-medical people don't know how to treat their pain, even though medicines like Panadol and Brufin are available over the counter. Instead, you might hear things like, oh, Panadol never works for me, or my hangnail really, really hurts, can't you give me a really strong pain relief like morphine? So to help you, I'm going to explain to you a very famous and useful medical concept that doctors use called the analgesic ladder. This is a model that the World Health Organization devised to help doctors and nurses decide what the most appropriate pain relief regimen is for different clinical situations and levels of pain. Let's start on the first rung of the ladder, mild pain. Now, obviously pain is very subjective and we already know that things like the pain scale and people's reports of Having a very high pain tolerance, are very unreliable in measuring how much pain someone is experiencing at that given moment. But still, we can somewhat classify the different pains into mild, moderate, and severe. So mild pain would be something like, say, you fell over and grazed your knee. For this kind of pain, we use the simplest analgesic, paracetamol. Paracetamol gets a bit of a bad rap because people often think of it as weak sauce, or that it doesn't do anything. Some people also get worried about taking paracetamol for too long because they've heard about paracetamol maybe ruining your liver. But this is a common misconception. Yes, paracetamol is definitely weaker than morphine, but it's actually been shown to be quite effective in musculoskeletal pains such as sprains and bruises, inflammatory pains such as muscle aches from flu, and headaches such as migraines. The problem is that people will often wait for a very long time until their pain gets really bad, then take one dose of paracetamol, then find it doesn't do much. This is because paracetamol works much better when you take it regularly four times a day, and earlier in the course of the pain rather than when it's really sore. This is because in general, pain is really hard to treat when it's very bad, but much easier when it's starting. Like how you can snuff out a candle fire with wet fingers, but a burning house will take an entire fire truck to extinguish. When you take pain relief regularly, it builds up in your bloodstream so it'll slowly chip away at the pain. When the pain is settled, the regular doses also prevent the pain from getting worse by hitting it constantly, because it nips it in the butt. So yes, Panadol works, but you need to take it regularly, and you need to start taking it early when the pain is starting. It's also very safe to take as long as you don't exceed the recommended maximum dosage, which is 4 times a day. A fifth dose won't hurt either. 
It has very, very minimal side effects as long as you don't overdose on it, unlike all the other pain medications we'll talk about. So there really is no excuse for you not to take paracetamol for pain, unless you have a very specific health condition like liver failure. Side note, if you do overdose on paracetamol, say taking more than 20 tablets at once, then yes, it will kill you because it will destroy your liver, leading to a slow, painful, miserable death while you vomit and turn yellow and get confused from encephalopathy as you would away for days. Very much not a good way to go, so don't even think about it, please. Alright, so let's say you're taking Panadol regularly, but your pain is a bit more than mild. Say mild-moderate because you sprained your ankle. Can you prescribe anything else, doctor? This is when we climb up the analgesic ladder to level 2. Here we add in another class of simple analgesics, which are the NSAIDs, or anti-inflammatory medications. These are particularly good for when the cause of pain is due to inflammation, such as musculoskeletal injuries like sprains and fractures, arthritis, viral infections like colds and flu, and also migraines. Better yet, they work synergistically with paracetamol. More often than not, the combination of Panadol and Brufen is sufficient to treat most common causes of pain outside of the hospital. NSAIDs are also reasonably safe in young healthy people, but they come with some important side effects, so that's why we don't willy-nilly give ibuprofen to everyone. Because of how they work, NSAIDs can wear out the lining of your stomach, which make it vulnerable to being burned by its own acids. This is why we always say to have food before you take ibuprofen or Voltaren, because otherwise you can get really bad stomach ulcers. They can also damage your kidneys and increase the risk of bleeding, so we generally avoid it in elderly people. But in young healthy people, it's an extremely effective pain relief, especially when you combine it with paracetamol. There have been many studies that show the combination of paracetamol and ibuprofen is as effective or sometimes even better than weak opioids such as codeine for musculoskeletal injuries. It's also particularly useful for menstrual pains because it interferes with the hormonal pathways that cause period cramps. Oh, random fun fact. You might know that in various cultures, willow bark was a common herbal remedy for headaches and pain. Willow bark is where we get aspirin, which is a type of NSAID. It's cool to know that some herbal remedies have actual scientific basis for how they worked, unlike homeopathy, which has no evidence. Alright, so between paracetamol and NSAIDs, we can treat most mild to moderate pains. But unfortunately, there are worse pains, like broken bones or lower back pain. So for the next level of the analgesic ladder, we add in a weak opioid such as codeine or tramadol. Now, tramadol is a bit of a weird drug because it's a synthetic opioid and it hits a lot of receptors, so it's kind of a dirty drug and we won't go too much into the details of that. Anyway, these drugs have a weaker action on the mu receptors in your spinal cord, which essentially means they can weaken the signals before they reach your brain. However, they also come with fun side effects like nausea and vomiting, very bad constipation, dizziness, and can be quite addictive. This is why we don't use it unless you have quite nasty pain. A lot of medicine is weighing the risks and benefits to decide on the most optimal therapy, because at the end of the day, we are intentionally using controlled doses of various poisons to treat you. Now, before we move on to severe pain, two important principles to cover. The first is about the ladder itself. The whole reason for the ladder is so that you never forget the foundational steps, which are Pandol and NSAIDs. You shouldn't immediately jump to codeine or tramadol for moderate pain because simpler, safer medications like paracetamol might do the job fine. Plus, many of these pain reliefs work well together, so you should be adding on the pain relief layer by layer. For example, if I'm discharging someone who has just had ankle surgery, we might discharge them on paracetamol, ibuprofen, and codeine. 
I tell the patient to take all three of the medications regularly for the first couple days. Then as the pain starts reducing, the swelling starts going down and the body's healing, they can go back down the analgesic ladder, so stop taking the codeine. If the pain's getting worse, they can always go back up the ladder and take codeine as needed, but there's no reason to take it and suffer horrible constipation unnecessarily. Then, as the pain gets steadily better, they can also stop taking ibuprofen, until eventually, they might just need occasional Panadols to manage their pain. And that's how the analgesic ladder works. The second point is that nowadays we have an expectation that we should not be in any pain. But remember that paracetamol was only invented 150 years ago. Before that, pain was an extremely natural phenomenon that was terrible, yes, but common and expected. The point of pain relief isn't to make it go away 100%. I mean, ideally it would, and maybe in the future we'll have better medicines. But in reality, the goal of effective analgesia is to treat a patient so that they can manage their pain and do their day-to-day -day activities such as walking around, eating, and talking. So that's why we set expectations in medicine, such as telling a person with gastritis or musculoskeletal chest pain that they will have pain for the next few days, but the pain relief will help them get by while the body does its thing and the noxious stimuli eventually goes away and you're healed. But at the same time, we don't want people suffering, so what do we do when people are having severe pain not managed by paracetamol, NSAIDs, codeine, and tramadol? This is when the heavy hitters come out. Opioids. If you came into hospital with appendicitis, kidney stones, or you got hit by a bus, or have pain that is, as Ali Brosh of Hyperbole and a Half puts it, too serious for numbers, then we need to start you with something far stronger and faster acting than paracetamol. We usually use morphine or fentanyl through an intravenous or IV line in these situations. Because we're putting the drugs straight into your veins, they work within minutes as opposed to the half an hour that it takes for most tablet medications to be absorbed. These drugs will quickly go to your spinal cord, switch on the receptors that dampen the pain signal, and will be able to cut down a significant amount of pain you're experiencing. Hooray for morphine! One of the oldest pain relief happens to also be one of the most effective pain relief we still have. So why don't we use morphine for everything, like when you have a boo-boo on your pinky? Well, because like we mentioned, opioids come with some heavy downsides. The first problem is that it often makes people feel nauseated, vomit, have severe constipation, and get really itchy. It can also make you drowsy and slow your breathing to a point where you might even stop breathing. This is often how people who overdose on heroin die, because heroin's a type of opioid. Lastly, opioids are incredibly addictive. Research has shown that even codeine, one of the weakest opioids, needs only three days to make you addicted to it. Many countries have experienced an opioid epidemic in the last few decades, where many people have to keep using opioids due to their addictions or dependencies. In severe cases, they might get serious withdrawal symptoms if they stop taking it, or turn to criminal activities to fuel their addiction. And that's why we have the analgesic ladder, to avoid over-dispensing things like opioids. Just because you have powerful tools doesn't mean you should use it for everything. Like, you wouldn't use a sledgehammer to put a nail in the wall for a painting, because you might break the entire wall. Still, morphine and fentanyl are extremely effective medications that we use a lot in hospital. That's why you should get medical advice from health professionals who have been learning and training for years and years on how to give these medications safely, not Dr. Google. And remember the analgesic ladder. Morphine and fentanyl are great for acute pain in the initial steps to curb the intense pain, but you shouldn't forget to give other pain relief like paracetamol and NSAIDs once the pain is more settled and the patient can swallow tablets, because we want to wean the pain relief down the analgesic ladder as appropriate. 
one way we might do this is through something called a PCA, or patient-controlled analgesia, which you might see in people who've just had an operation. This is a special pump loaded with opioids, where the dose is given by the patient themselves at the push of a button. But don't worry, it can only give a certain amount of doses in a certain time period, so they won't overdose. But at the same time, it means the patient can use the pain relief just when they need it, rather than having it regularly when they're not in pain, or not having it available because they had it when they weren't having any pain. This lets people get better pain relief while weaning them quicker to simpler pain relief. Alright, so hopefully the analgesic ladder gives you a bit of a framework to understand how different pain reliefs work and when we use them. Essentially to recap, we start with the simple pain relief like paracetamol and ibuprofen for mild to moderate pain. Then we can add in codeine or tramadol if the pain is not adequately treated. But if the pain's severe, we crank it up and start giving opioids. At the same time, it's important to give pain relief regularly and early in the course of pain for the best effect. But wait doctor, I've had all the pain relief you've given me, but I'm still in severe pain, what do I do? Oh dear. Alright, well before we finish this episode, let's briefly cover some of the less common pain reliefs for very specific situations. So like we mentioned, we often need a cocktail of pain relief to adequately control severe pain. But in some situations, this isn't enough. We can give even more opioids, but you might run into problems like opioid narcosis, where the person stops breathing. In these situations, we might add in different kinds of pain relief, such as ketamine, which is an anesthetic drug that scrambles signals inside your brain. At low doses, it can be a very effective pain relief, but it can also put you in a coma if we're not careful and dose you too much with it, so we'd reserve it for very severe pain. Or it could be that you have a type of pain that morphine doesn't really work well against. We know that morphine works at the spinal cord, which means that it's not as effective for some kinds of pains, such as migraines and what we call neuropathic pain, where the nerve is telling the brain it's being damaged even when it's not. In these cases, we might have to use more specific medications such as antidepressants like amitriptyline, anti-seizure medications like topiramate, or a medicine called gabapentin that dampens nerve signals. As common as it is, pain can be an extremely complex phenomenon. Which is why despite all of our medical advances and years of medical education, we're not always great with managing all the various kinds of pain. And that's why we have pain clinics and pain specialists. We haven't even talked about things like chronic pain, phantom pain, and psychic pain. We'll discuss those in a later episode. But for now, hopefully this episode gave you a bit of an overview on how pain medicines work, and why you should really take the damn Panadol and Ibuprofen regularly for your headache before messaging your doctor friend. Alright, so what did we learn today? We learned that pain is your body's way of alerting that a part of it is being damaged so that you can get onto fixing it and stop hurting yourself. We learned that this is done through an electrical signal that goes from the site of the pain all the way to your brain through lots of nerves. We learned that we can interrupt the signal or treat the inflammation that's causing damage to treat pain. We learned about the analgesic ladder, how to layer on stronger pain relief as needed and the importance of taking regular, simple analgesia to treat most pains. We learned about some of the important side effects of various medications, and why it's important to follow prescription instructions so you don't accidentally harm yourself. Lastly, we learned that pain is really complicated, but it's also very natural and often quite manageable through a mix of different ways. Okay, for today's 2 minutes explain, I'd like to carry on the topic of pain. When people are in pain, they'll often clench their fists or rub their tummy or even pinch themselves somewhere else. 
You might have seen movies where an old-timey army doctor is telling a soldier to bite down on a piece of wood hard while they saw their leg off because proper pain relief hadn't been invented yet. Oof, glad we don't live in that era. Is there a reason for this? Well, it turns out yes, all of these things might help make you feel less pain. Remember how the pain signal travels up nerves into the spinal cord, then into the brain? Well, scientists think that in your spinal cord, you actually have a bunch of gates that control nerve signals going through it. This is called the gate control theory, and it's one of the more modern views on how our brain perceives pain. Now this gate is not like a physical gate that opens and closes, but the spinal cord may be able to control the amount of pain signal that goes through it, similar to how morphine can reduce pain signals. This happens when two nerve signals reach the spinal cord at the same time. For example, pain signal from where you hurt, and touch signals from where you're rubbing your skin. Because these two types of signals use different nerves, when both signals arrive to the spinal cord, the touch signal goes through first, while the pain signal gets blocked. It's kind of like those railway switches that decide which train goes first when the railway track merges. This might be why we instinctively rub our legs when we bang it on a table, or why we rub our tummy when we have abdominal pain. The sensation of touch might be physically blocking the pain. Similarly, it's thought that our emotions and conscious thoughts can affect this gait. For example, if you're thinking less about the pain or laughing, you'll experience less pain. This is the basis for modern mindfulness-based pain management for things like chronic pain where traditional analgesia don't really work that well. So next time you're sore, try rubbing your skin or actively thinking about something other than pain, like a meme you enjoy. It might not be as good as morphine, but it might help. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening to Explain This. I hope you've learned something interesting and maybe even useful today. We'll see you next time. Bye for now. Explain This was written and hosted by me, Jin Kim. If you'd like to suggest a topic or just send a lovely message, you can email me at explainthiscast at gmail.com or follow me on Facebook or Twitter 